Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Father, thank you for uh, you being in control of the entire process uh, and even um, the slowing down of the process from time to time. Lord, we know that you're still sovereign. And uh, as that proverb says, we learned that uh, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the Lord's hands and you control it and you move it in any direction. And uh, Lord, you tell us to bring our request to you. And so we're giving you a very specific request now. We would like the permits, please. Um, and so do what is best for us and uh, accomplish your purposes. Lord, uh, bless our time. Open up the word to our hearts. Thank you for it. Uh, we thank you that there is a place in our world in which uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and people aren't even certain about things they think they're certain about. Um, and they'll tell you that. Uh, Lord, we're grateful that we can sit under the word and uh, we can receive uh, the words of truth. And we do pray that you would reveal uh, things to our hearts, Lord, uh, maybe even things that uh, we didn't, I didn't plan to kind of share, but Lord, you just use the, work, the word in the way that you do. Um, and it just resonates with our hearts and we know that it's from you. And so minister to each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Proverbs chapter 22. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 22. Verse 17 is where we uh, began a new section of the book of Proverbs, uh, which will go on for about two chapters. Hopefully, if you were with us, uh, you recall that we've entered into that new section that began in verse 17. When we were last together, we, I introduced it. Solomon, he gives about four or five verses sort of introducing, all right, I'm going to give you 30 sayings now, son. And these are different from chapters 10 to 22 because in chapters 10 to 22, you have a lot of individual statements, one verse or so in length. Um, here now you have three, four, five verses that are kind of grouped together about a particular topic. So it'll be a little bit different from where we have been the last 13 chapters uh, or so. But these are instructions to Solomon's son. <clears throat> Some very specific. You may look at it and you're like, all right, I don't think that applies to me. I do think they all will eventually apply to you because not only are these to his son, but the Lord has given them to us as his sons and as his daughters as well. And so we'll dig into them. Notice this first one. It says in verse 22, it says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Now mention is made there in uh, the end of verse 22 of the gate. And you recall that the gate was the place where it was the, the place of civil authority. This would be town hall. This would be the county uh, court system. This would be the place where justice was supposed to be meted out. People would hear a case. Based on the merits of the case, they would make a decision uh, so that the person could enjoy um, some justice there in ancient society. And so the point then is not to oppress the afflicted at the place where they should be getting justice. And so here I am, I'm afflicted, I've been wronged in some way, I need to bring this matter to court, I bring it to court, and now you afflict me even further. The scripture says the Lord takes notice of that. Notice in the verse, he says, do not rob the poor. Now the poor lack the resources or they have very limited means of remedying that circumstance. So you rob me and perhaps I have some means, well I'm getting a lawyer. And I'm reaching out to this person and that person. We're going to get the law down here and we're going to take care of this situation. Well, oftentimes the poor don't have those resources. And so Solomon says, do not rob the poor. He says in, a little bit later, don't crush the afflicted. 
And again, because of their circumstances, they're there at that gate to get justice. And the, the point is this. You have two individuals that are relatively weaker in society. Don't take advantage of them. That's what Solomon's instructions is to uh, his son here. Protect the citizenry that needs to be protected. It's unacceptable to rob the poor and increase their impoverishment. It's it's unacceptable to afflict those that are already afflicted. And Solomon is drawing our attention to these things here. And if you want to just look at it from the perspective of self-preservation, it's a bad idea. Because as the verse goes on to say, the Lord pleads the cause, um, will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. So do you really want to make the Lord your adversary? Well, this is the way to do it. Take advantage of those that can't uh, protect themselves, provide for themselves. Make sense? The Lord's desire is that we honor him by honoring others and that we show respect for him by showing respect for others. And he calls his son, Solomon uh, challenges his son in that particular area, even as the Lord challenges us. Verse 24 goes on, two verses together say, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. More often than not, we become like the company we keep. We become like the company we keep. And so if we're going to walk in wisdom, we need to be careful about who we give ourselves to as our closest friends and confidants. And so Solomon here says, make no friendship with a man that is given given to anger, lest you become like that man. He goes, essentially goes on to say. Now, of course, you can make an acquaintance with folks that are given to anger. Or you can make an acquaintance with folks that are given to any character defect that you don't want in your life. You can be nice to them. You can be friendly to them. But just be careful about giving yourself to them. Giving your heart over them where they become one of your closest of individuals. And the reason, the warning is, lest you become like them and then get pulled into their drama. And so the next thing you know, all of the issues and problems that they're dealing with, you're beginning to deal with as well. And notice again there, he doesn't say, you know, lest they get mad at you or lest they turn and and strike you in their anger. What he says essentially is lest you become like them. That's the warning, to be on your guard lest you yourself then become an angry individual that is given to your anger or again, any other character flaw that may be out there. If you want to walk in wisdom, you have to be careful about who you give yourself to walk that path with. Because more often than not, we become like those that we give ourselves to. Make sense? All right, verse 26. Thanks, Bob. Uh, Bob liked it. Uh, 26 and 27, it says, Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up securities for, security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Not the first time we heard about taking a pledge for somebody else's debt. That's the idea, to give a pledge or to put up security for another person's debt. That if they can't pay the debt, you agree to. Again, I said this before, if a person is in such a bad place financially that they can't get resources unless somebody else agrees to pay the debt if they can't, well, then that's probably a person you don't want to sign on for. Make sense? And so Solomon there reminds us this. And again, as I've been mentioning, if you can't afford to give an outright gift, then you almost certainly shouldn't be getting financially involved in this circumstance. We've talked about it a number of times already in Proverbs. 
Verse 28 says, do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Now we speak of landmarks typically as signs or markers of some form that mark a particular spot. Some great event happened in this particular place. George Washington slept here or something. He slept a lot of places in New Jersey. You know, and you see these signs, you're like, wow, look at the landmark or, or whatever. I just noticed outside by the playground is a big stone with a fence around it. I never read the, the placard on there, but something happened out there in the playground, uh, apparently so. And so typically that's what we mean by landmarks. Now, when the Bible uses the term landmarks, we use it this way, but just rarely here. It's referring to a stone or a post or something designed to mark the parameters of a person's land. It literally is a land mark. This is your property. Other side of that little rock there is the neighbor's uh, property. And so the admonition then is do not move the ancient landmark, marker of land that your fathers have set. Unfortunately, the tendency was dishonest people would go out at night and move the rock afoot. Nobody would notice. And then they move it another foot the next night. Or when the person goes on vacation, they come back and they're like, I feel like I have less lawn to cut all of a sudden, whatever it may be. But it's just little by little by little ripping the person off, ripping off their neighbor in just this subtle, almost uh, unnoticeable way. And you can get away with it because who's going to notice if it's a foot? or six inches. Is anybody really going to notice it if you do that every six months? You, you encroach on the neighbor's land a foot or so? No, and you could get away with it. Solomon says don't. Don't do it anyway. It's wrong and you shouldn't be doing it. So friends, stay away from your neighbor's landmark. All right, there's your advice. We'll come back to that actually in a verse in chapter 23. Verse 29 says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. I think the takeaway for, our, for us is this. If you're diligent in your work, if you're diligent in your business, people that need to take notice will take notice. That a person who excels in their work will be promoted in positions of honor. There's that old expression, the cream rises to the top. So think about examples in the scripture. Moses rose to the leadership position. Joseph, even as a prisoner, would rise up. Daniel, Nehemiah, the cream rises to the top. You faithfully do what you're called to do. You be diligent about the job that is in front of you, and those that need to take notice will take notice. And in the example of those other individuals, each one of them stood before kings, or the equivalent, whatever that was termed in in their particular day here. In our instance, it may cause us to rise up in positions uh, at our place of business or what have you. Because the Lord rewards the diligent. And the wise leader, now some leaders are just fools, but the wise leader will see that and know it's to his or her advantage to bring that person to another level at that particular place. And so the person who applies him or herself to their labor. Now, let me say this. Some people apply themselves to their labor when the boss is watching. And so the boss comes in and boy, they can really bang out those, I don't know, memos or whatever, you know, and man, look at her type or him type or whatever. And when the boss leaves, you know, they just kind of, they slack or whatever. You need to be diligent to your responsibility all the time. That's what a boss said, because come on, unless your boss is an idiot, he or she knows what's going on, even if you're not there. They got the cameras also, I'm just kidding. Uh, But they know word filters back. They know what can come off your desk 
And boy, you can really produce some stuff when I'm around, but where, what happens when I'm not there? Nothing's coming out of your office. Whatever. They know these things. They're paying attention to these things they're observing. And you just be diligent for diligence sake. I'm honoring the Lord by doing what I'm supposed to do and doing it well. People take notice of that. That's the type of employees bosses want. And so they're going to be looking for those types of individuals. So apply yourself to your abilities. Apply yourself to your tasks. And you'll be rewarded for doing so. All right, that's chapter 22. Chapter 23, starting in verse 1, three verses together. It says, now when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Pretty specific, isn't it? If you sit down with a ruler, plus the verse about putting a knife to your throat. Seems a little odd as well here. But he begins the chapter, now remember Solomon was a ruler. And so the likelihood that his son would be sitting for meals with other rulers is, is pretty likely there. The likelihood that you'll sit with a ruler who will invite you to dinner, some of you might, most of us won't. And so the application then is when we have the opportunity to gather in a social, this is so specific, to gather in a social opportunity with someone perhaps of a higher strata than we may be, be on your guard and be careful about your behavior, your performance, if you will, in that particular circumstance there. He gives us instructions of how we should act if we're ever invited to dine with someone outside of, so to speak, our circumstance in life, someone in a higher station in life. And the caution is this. Here's the caution. Exercise self-restraint. I I have trouble with this because if I'm in a a meal like that, no offense, dear, but it's usually this fancy meal that I don't get Monday through Friday or whatever. And, you know, this nice china and all all these things, and I got to remember bread, plate, dinner, knife or whatever, you know, and the B and the D, you know what I'm talking about. Apparently you don't or whatever, but that's how you know which one is, I don't even know what they are. Bread, B and D, what's that? Anybody? Bread and drink. This is my drink cup and my bread plate. I know the difference. I need, I need this to tell me the difference. I don't understand. Oh, so I know that's mine and not the neighbor's. That's what it is. That's what it is. So you don't take the neighbor's plate or cup, D and D. I got it. I learned that in college. I learned they, they sat me down in college because they, they said you might sit with important people or whatever. And so I, apparently I didn't learn it too well. Um, but I have a rough idea here. And so anyway, um, exercise self-restraint. And that, that's my problem. Like, I'm like, food, you know, and, and then people are like, man, you're embarrassing. Eat at home. Get some McDonald's or whatever on the way home or whatever. Act like a civilized human being in that particular setting there. But the, the idea is exercise self-restraint, and that's that phrase, put a knife to your throat. That's a really graphic way of saying prevent yourself from acting the fool. Present yourself from embarrassing yourself. And pre- prevent yourself from forgetting one important thing, whose presence you're in. Because all those delicacies in front of you there, they may all of a sudden grab your attention instead of the fact that you are in the presence of an honored individual, which would be the ruler in this particular instance there. Don't let all of the delicacies forget whose presence you are actually uh, before and act appropriately, it says. Lest your behavior either cause them to say, you know what, you should go. We made a mistake in inviting you. Or they never invite you again into that particular circumstance. And so to presume then on the lasting favor 
of this ruler or one in this higher station of life and then begin to un- unthinkingly, if that's a word, accept all of these things for yourself, that's a mistake that you would make. The admonition then is ever consider your host. Remind yourself of the setting that you're in, observing the ruler carefully as it goes on there. Now, verse 3 may be, I'm not sure about this, but I think so, it may be intimating the need to be on your guard lest this ruler in some way is seek by whining and dining you is seeking to influence you in some way that you might not naturally go and if that is indeed what verse 3 it says do not desire his delicacies for they are deceptive food if that is really the desire then really solomon is saying well then tread carefully be careful don't be swayed by the niceties and the delicacies and all of those things so i think just good helpful advice for a scenario that some of us, some of us may find ourselves in, uh, in one way or another, if you make the application, if you stretch it uh, enough. All right, good practical advice. Verse four, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. And so if you are spending your life pursuing the wrong thing, you will never acquire that thing. Because even when you do get it, it's not going to bring, what you're really looking for is the peace and the satisfaction you think that thing will bring. And when you, if you're pursuing the wrong thing, it'll never bring what, what it is you are looking for. The specific example here is the acquisition of wealth. And if your whole life is about acquiring wealth, then you're never going to get enough. Again, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. I don't know what you guys said, but we've said it a few times here. Just a little more. I just need a little bit more. Just a little bit more, and I'll be happy, and so on. And if that's the object of your heart, to use some of the phraseology, if you have set your eyes upon that which is fleeting, even when it is acquired, you'll notice that it so quickly vanishes away. The significance of it or it itself so quickly vanishes away. Now, look, we need to obtain this world's possessions. We need to participate in the system of economic exchange in this society. But what we have to do is we have to guard ourselves against setting our heart on those things. Or as it says there, our eye upon those things. Because it's when you do that, that our lives are taken off course. Make sense? I remember this lesson I learned when I was farming. I would have to, after the fields were sort of all planted for like the vegetables and stuff, you'd have these mile long rows of eggplant or tomatoes or whatever it may be. Uh, and in between those rows, we would have to rototill that a couple of times in the summer, two, three times in the summer. And that's really boring. I don't know if you know that. You're standing behind a machine as it's just digging up the dirt for a mile or whatever. And it's very easy to just start looking at the birds or whatever. Next thing you know, you're eating up eggplants. And, and what the fella said was you have to look straight up into the future there and you got to fi- get a fixed mark and work toward that mark, and then you gradually are guiding down there. But if you start to just kind of drift away and look away, you're going to get yourself into trouble. And then I had to pay. I ruined a whole bunch of tomatoes, and he took it out of my pay, and that really frustrated me when I was 12. Uh, what is a 12-year-old now? But anyway, I learned a valuable lesson. Alrighty? And it's this idea, if the acquisition of wealth becomes your focus, you're going to get off course, and you're going to be pursuing something that won't bring you the satisfaction you're hoping it'll bring, and it'll get you into trouble. Alright? Keep your eye focused on what needs to be focused on. Let's go on to verse 6. It says, do not, eat, excuse me, do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste 
your pleasant food. So now another specific situation where you're going to find yourself having dinner at somebody's home or, or something like that. And so it's another one that you need to be especially on your guard. Now, verse, again, verses 1 through 3 had the idea of being in the presence of a ruler. This one tells us to be on our guard against uh, when we go to eat with a stingy man or, or woman, we could apply there as well. Let me just say this, that no follower of Christ should ever be a stingy man or woman. There's no reason why a follower of Christ should be a stingy man or woman because freely we have received everything and freely give, as the scripture says. And the stingy, they approach things like your toddler. Mine, they say. They may not say it out loud, but everything is theirs. We know the reality is even that which is supposedly ours has ultimately been surrendered to the Lord. And so, Lord, use it as you would, uh, you would use it. Now, that's just bonus material. That's not what Solomon was intending in this verse, all right? But that's a little extra here as a May, whatever, 12th bonus for you there. Enjoy that. What Solomon is really warning is about being careful around the stingy man. And so, again, he says here, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy, and do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. And so the man may appear to be very kind, very hospitable, so glad to have you. I can't believe you're here with us. I'm so honored in your presence. But notice inwardly, he's calculating. And I gave you this bit of a meal. This is what you owe me in return. And you asked for two cups of soda. All right, now you owe me that in return. Inwardly calculating, saying, E, drink my friend. But he's not really your friend. The stingy man is actually calculating how he might take advantage of you. And when he does, as the verse goes on to say, those delicious morsels that you enjoyed in his presence, they're going to end up ultimately turning your stomach. And either you're going to want to throw up or you will throw up as a result of what you now owe this particular person here. And Solomon essentially says, look, don't waste your time there and don't be taken by this man's apparent generosity. I just think that's good, helpful advice. If somebody wants to put stipulations on you for what they do in your life, don't be manipulated by it and pull yourself out lest you get yourself into trouble. Verse 9 goes on. It says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. You may recall Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, or cast your pearls before swine. You hear that a lot lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And I think Solomon is essentially saying the same thing here. To seek to instruct someone who is set on foolishness is really a wasting of your breath. If somebody merely wants to argue with you or they want to make a mockery of your words, then Solomon says, look, don't waste your time. Now, I do think we should give it a shot. And we should try and communicate with that individual. But after a while, if it becomes clear that their response is just to argue with you or their response is just to mock you or whatever it may be, then the appropriate thing is, as again it says in the New Testament, shake the dust off your feet and to move on to the next individual that may want to hear. And so Solomon here gives us these instructions. If the person is inclined to reject your words, but you really feel, i got to convince this person, well then sometimes the best thing to do is just pull back and let the consequences of their behavior convince them. That's the way the Lord works. We could either be taught 
and learn the lesson sitting in a classroom, or we have to go through the field trip experience. And so if the person won't listen to your words and they mock your words or uh, they want to argue with you, then it's okay to just pull back and say, all right, and leave that person to the Lord. I wouldn't say the Lord will get you. I wouldn't say that uh, as we were tempted to do so. But just leave the person to the Lord and allow the Lord to do a changing work uh, within that particular person. Okay, verse 10 and 11 says, again, look, do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is strong and he will plead their cause against you. So again, this idea of the ancient landmark, we saw that back in chapter 22. Now here the admonition is expanded a little bit further, or perhaps it's clarified. You may, you see it there. It says, not to move the ancient landmark of the fatherless. So in Solomon's day, as really in our day, you shouldn't do it either, um, but people were not to go into the fields of the orphan, or that's the fatherless, and take advantage of their situation. And so you have some kid, he just lost his parents or whatever, he doesn't really know what is going on there. And now someone looks at the calamity that kid is going through and the weakness that person is dealing with, and now's an opportunity to take advantage of that person. Now I can get a good deal. And I'll go and I'll offer, well, I'll offer you this much for this crummy land you have here. I'll take it off your hands. And you know all along the value of that is far higher than what you're going to offer that particular person or you're going to cheat them in some way. You know, your dad and I made an agreement that when he die, this land, this portion of land will become mine. The kid doesn't know, and you take advantage of the kid. Solomon says, don't do it. You can do it. You can make the Lord, as we said earlier, your adversary. You can get yourself a killer deal, but the Lord takes notice of these things. Look at verse 11. It says, the Redeemer is strong, and he will plead their cause against you. And again, I'm pretty sure making the Lord your adversary it's perhaps one of the biggest mistakes you can make in your entire life, no matter how much money you can make on the supposed deal there. So do not go in that particular direction, especially if you want to walk in the way of wisdom. Verse 12, it says, apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Again, this is last week's message, really. If you want to grow in wisdom, then you have to apply yourself to wisdom. And again, what that means is you have to make changes in your life. And so if the Lord speaks into your life about a particular area, and I imagine this is what's happening for a lot of us if we've been digging into the Proverbs study, we've been around a while, is there are these recurring themes. And each time that theme comes up, there's just sort of this little light bulb in our head and like, you know what, that's that area I've been telling you about. And the Lord just is sort of putting his finger on that area. And you're, you're sitting here the first time, you're like, wow, that's deep, Lord. And then you, you get distracted on the way out and people start talking, you end up at the diner and you forget. And then two, mo- two weeks later, there's that topic again. And you're like, yeah, that's right, I remember that. But then you don't do anything with it. And then five weeks later, the same thing, you don't do anything with it. If you're going to grow in wisdom, if we're going to grow in wisdom, we have to apply ourselves to this wisdom. So if the Lord's been speaking about a particular area, if you keep ignoring him, you can agree with him. That's right, Lord. But if you don't do something about it, you're never going to grow. And so here, apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Put it into action. When God, by his spirit, directs you in a different direction, then you have to move in that direction. That's the meaning of the idea of application. 
or applying your ears to knowledge and your heart to instruction. That's the only way that we grow spiritually. So one more exhortation then from Solomon. If the Lord's been speaking, I'll give you the exhortation. If the Lord's been speaking about an area, determine, you know what, today's the day. I'm just going to do what the Lord told me to do in this particular area. I'm not going to figure out how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to, can I follow through? Just step out and do it. And do it again tomorrow and the next day and so on. And the Lord will grow you in wisdom as a result. Verse 13 says, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Now, some parents refuse to discipline their children for a variety of reasons. Some have read literature from this place and that place that said that kids learn best when allowed to do whatever they want. The, the kind of inner heart and mind will take them in the direction. Some of you don't agree with that. I can see vigorously shaking here. Um, you know, so there's different philosophies that are out there, certainly so. Some people refuse their child to discipline their children because they're afraid of disciplining their children. I don't want to be unkind to my child. I want my child to like me, and I don't want to hurt his or her feelings and things like that. What we learn in the scripture is it's not unkind to discipline your children. What is unkind is to withhold discipline from your children. Now Solomon says here, if you strike him, your child, with a rod, he will not die. Now this may mean one of two things. It may mean if you discipline your kid, then they won't end up dying from the foolishness they'll get themselves into without discipline from mom or dad. And so if you strike your child with the rod, they won't die. Or it may mean they're not going to die from a little bit of discipline in their life. And so strike your child with the rod. Either way, the point there is that discipline is for their good. Discipline is for their good, both here on the earth and in preparation for eternity. Because a child that is left to their unruliness and their rebellion against the authority of their parents will grow to be an adult that will exercise unruliness and rebellion against all forms of authority and ultimately against God. And such a person then is destined for an eternity apart from God. That's the meaning of the second half, verse 14. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. And so if a child is never taught to deal with authority properly when they're young, almost certainly they're not going to deal with authority properly when they're old and ultimately in their relationship with God, the consequences for that is to be put out of the presence from God, of God. Matthew Henry, he said this, let the body smart so that the spirit may be saved. And parents are afforded an awesome responsibility in the lives of their children to train them carefully to train them consistently. And ultimately, that's the idea of disciplining. Now, sometimes that discipline involves what Solomon calls here the rod. But the overarching idea, the emphasis here, is the importance of teaching our kids, rebuking our kids, correcting our kids, training our kids. That's his overall uh, arching uh, message here. So discipline then, administered appropriately, and discipline shouldn't be administered in anger. It shouldn't be administered in harshness. It shouldn't be administered for my benefit. So I'm the dad. It shouldn't be administered for my benefit at all. It should be for my kid's benefit. So if I step in and I want to discipline so that I can have peace and quiet in the home, my heart's not in the right place. 
and I need to be careful because then I step outside of the appropriate measure of discipline in a particular child's life and I move into areas of undue severity or other things like that. Now for the present we know no discipline is joyous. Parents don't like to do it. I just want to watch a game. That's all I want to do. All right, I don't have to get up. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to get a little spanking here and there. It's going to hurt me more than it hurts you. All those kinds of expressions uh, that you hear, it's not joyous for the parent. It's certainly not joyous for the child. But when the discipline is given with wisdom, when it's designed for the child's good, when it's accompanied with prayer and humility on the part of the parent, God uses that in the kid's life for the child's good. So do you want to... Do you want good for your kid? Consistently, steadily, lovingly discipline your children and save them from the pain temporarily and eternally of all that comes from unruliness and rebellion. Amen? Think of that. Verse 15 and 16, it says, My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exalt when, exalt when your lips speak what is right. As a dad, I... Th- I think I can speak for dads here, moms perhaps as well. A child, I don't think a child could give their father a greater gift than to walk in wisdom and righteousness. If you have a kid that is walking in wisdom and righteousness, that's a tremendous relief to a mom or a dad. Because wherever they go as they enter into their adult years and raise their own families or or what have you uh, with their life circumstances, as a mom or dad, you can pull back and you can take a deep breath and say, my kid's okay. The Lord's got him. And so for those of us here that don't have earthly children, I think with John, the apostle, you can say this of those spiritual children that the Lord may bring into your life, those younger brothers or sisters in the faith that the Lord has provided you an opportunity uh, to pour into. And I think every one of us here should pour into somebody else's life people from older than you, so to speak, more mature than you, should be pouring into your life. You should be pouring into other people's lives. And I want to encourage you in that as we're moving into this summer. We'll talk about that potluck family thing we're having. Uh, I'm very excited about it. I, it doesn't sound like it from how I just described it here, um, but it should be wonderful, especially a whole half of the alphabet of desserts. How could the day go wrong? Uh, whatever it may be. Um, but anyway, that being said here, you should pour into people's lives. And we're going to be talking uh, about that. And the Apostle John, he said this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And he wasn't talking about his earthly children. He was talking about those spiritual children that he as an older man in his 80s was pouring himself still into. And when you boil everything down in this world, those are the things that really matter is that your son, your daughter, your spiritual children, what have you, are walking in wisdom and walking in righteousness. It all comes down to that. And Solomon reminds us of that here in this verse. Verse 17 and 18, he says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord uh, all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Unfortunately, I think for many of us, maybe even all of us at some point in times or another, there's a proclivity in our hearts to envy sinners. Solomon says not to. We may say to ourselves, well, sinners seem to have all the fun. Sinners seem to get ahead because they have no business scruples. Sinners seem to say what they want and do what they want. And, you know, you just go down this line of what sinners get to do, and I can't because I'm a Christian. 
And it seems as if we're envying sinners. Solomon reminds us here, let not your heart envy sinners. Guard your heart. If it goes down that direction, bring it back quickly and say, no, we're not going down that direction. And part of the reason, he provides part of the reason why we shouldn't envy sinners, he says, for surely there is a future. Now, there's a, one of the translations translates this as, uh, for verily, so it's like a King Jamesian type, it says, for verily there is a hereafter. Don't envy sinners because truly there is a hereafter. There is a time coming when present conditions will be reversed and righteousness will triumph on the earth as it is in heaven. You remember Jesus when he taught his disciples how to pray. So to envy those who seem to prosper in wickedness is not wise because there is a day of retribution coming. Now back in chapter 21, there's a similar verse to to what we're talking about here. And you may recall that that very real struggle of people seeking to walk in wisdom, to walk in righteousness, envying those that don't, comes up again and again in the scripture. And I think one of the best examples of this is to look at the Psalms. And in Psalm chapter 73, you have that fellow Asaph there. Asaph pretty much wrote the second most number of Psalms in, in the book behind David. And Asaph, he wrote this in Psalm 73. He confessed the fact of his heart's tendency to envy sinners. I'll read it relatively quickly. He said, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. That's considered a good thing. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff. They speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten opposition. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They never get in trouble. They can do whatever they want. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. He's envying the wicked there, isn't he? What a crummy feeling, isn't it? You've been there. And that's what Asaph is going through. But then, a few verses later, Asaph reminds himself of the end of the wicked. And it changes everything. And so beginning in verse 16 of that same chapter, he says, When I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me to be a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, God, you, set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. For Asaph, it was the reminder of the hereafter that put everything in perspective. And it's the same exact way it would work for you and I as well. And so if you find yourself ever struggling with envying the wicked, then bring yourself to the sanctuary of the Lord. Put everything in perspective. Rather than envying the wicked, the godly will actually pity the wicked. Because we know unless there's a change of course of action, what the hereafter will mean for those individuals. And our heart should be moved to break for them, not envy in them, but break for them that the Lord might change their heart. So don't envy sinners. Envying sinners, a life of sin only brings death and destruction here on the earth and ultimately eternally. 
On the other hand, you'll never be disappointed for serving, loving, and obeying the Lord. And that's something that is better than envying whatever sinners might be prospering in at that particular point of time. Notice what the verse uh, goes on. Verse 17 says, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. That's living in constant fellowship with the Lord. We want to envy the sinners. Something better than that is living in unhindered fellowship with the Lord all the day. And Solomon says, pursue that. Verse 19 three verses together. It says, Hear, my son, and be wise. Direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. And so Solomon here, he pleads with his son, listen to me, he says. Be careful. Make wise decisions, he says. Notice he says in verse uh, 19 there, He calls for him to direct his heart. And again, we have to do that because our heart's tendency is to go in a particular direction. We got to bring it back and say, no, no, we're going this particular way here. I told you about my poor blind dog that we have here. Everybody give me an all for my dog. Yeah, it's a poor little fella there. And so sometimes the poor dog gets kind of turned around and he doesn't exactly know where he is and he's standing by the wall to go outside. And you're like, yeah, I can't go through walls, little buddy. You know, no. And you take his little hiney, his little butt, and you, you kind of shout, we're going to go out this way. And so you have to direct him. And our hearts do that. They get lost. They get turned around. They're blinded. They don't know the direction that they're going. We have to direct it. And we're, we're going to go this way. We're going to go the ways of the Lord. And Solomon says that to his son here. He says, direct your heart in the way. He gives them this instruction. Keep yourself from the way of the drunkard and the glutton. So a drunkard's a person who drinks too much. A glutton is a person who eats too much. And ultimately, Solomon's point is this. Lack of moderation, lack of restraint, whether it's alcohol, whether it's food, whether it's anything, lack of moderation or restraint in those particular areas take their toll on a person. So when a person is given to carnal desires and they let their carnal desires rule and reign, that person sets themselves up for trouble. Again, we become like those we are most closely connected with. And Solomon tells us, be careful who you give your heart to, the drunkard, the glutton, what have you. Again, the advice is for a son to take care of who he allows uh, himself uh, to be with, lest he become like those individuals. Verse 22, it says, listen to your father who gave you life, my favorite Bible verse, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Not my wife's favorite verse, she's not old. All right, she's very young. But too often, I think the tendency, and I don't blame this generation, I think every generation does this, but I think too often the next generation minimizes the value of the generation that came before them. And so there's sort of this mindset of, you guys did it all wrong, we'll clean it up here. Or you guys are has-beens, you know, now that I'm on the scene, look out whatever it may be. Old folks have years of experience behind them. And it's the wise young person that recognizes that and tries to benefit as much as possible from that experience. That's why I can't emphasize enough the importance. If you're going to get involved in a small group, uh, I strongly recommend you get involved in a mixed age small group where there's old people in the group and there's young people in the group and there's middle-aged people in the group that the young people think are the old people in the group. Get involved with all of those people because everyone's in a different place in life. 
and you can learn something from the person who's still raising young people at home and the exuberance of the young person that's just coming out of college or in college and the old person who's kind of been through it and has perspective of that whole process there. So valuable in our walks with the Lord. So as you're evaluating small groups to get involved with, consider uh, such a, a scenario for yourself. It'll be for your benefit. Verse 23, buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Quite simply, truth should be so valuable to us that we should be willing to pay anything to obtain it and accept nothing to sell it. Make sense? It should be so valuable for, uh, to us that we would pay anything to get it and we wouldn't accept anything to give it away. We wouldn't sell it for pleasures or riches or fames, fame or this world's success, nothing. And how do you sell truth? Well, you sell truth when you ignore truth to obtain the lie. How do you sell truth? You sell truth when you ignore truth to obtain the lie. And so if you know the right thing to do, but this particular temptation seems too good to pass up, and you go toward that temptation anyway, then you have sold truth. If you know the way of wisdom, but you want what you want now, and you'll give up anything for it, then you're selling truth. We are to prize truth so highly. That's Solomon's exhortation there, that you wouldn't consider giving anything. Not friends, not reputation, not possessions, not even your life in order to get it, in exchange for it. Verse 24, 25, it says, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. Modern, modern custom, actually it's probably a, a little out of custom, but modern custom says on Father's Day get dad a tie and on Mother's Day get mom some flowers or a box of chocolates, right? Isn't that basically the go-to? Apparently not. Okay. I always thought that was, you know, get dad a tie or mom a box of chocolates. I think more rewarding to a parent, just like we saw back in verse 15 and 16, is for a son or daughter to walk wisely and walk in righteousness. That's the best gift you could give your mom and dad. And I would say this, even so the Lord is pleased because we're his children. And when we walk in wisdom and we walk according to righteousness, his heart is pleased for doing so. And again, we're not going to be perfect. None of us will be perfect. But I think the Lord delights in our attempts to walk in righteousness and our attempts to walk in wisdom. And so today we're going to go now as we leave here, let's commit our ways this week to the Lord, to walk in his ways, to walk in righteousness, to walk in wisdom. The Lord will be pleased for doing so. And I'll just say this one last time. If the Lord has been putting on your heart a recurring idea and a recurring theme that he's been speaking to your heart, commit yourself this week. This week, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what he's been telling me to do, and I'm going to take the steps that he's been telling me, uh, the steps to take. And the Lord will honor that and will bless that. Amen? You agree? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for some of these very, very practical things here. Lord, about how to be careful when we eat with rulers or um, being on our guard against what we're going to owe a stingy man uh, a little bit later on. Lord, admonitions about uh, taking surety for another uh, or security, pledging security for another person. Lord, just very practical things, and we thank you for that reality. And Lord, I imagine in those practicalities, every one of us here is hearing a slightly different thing based on how it applies to each of our lives. Lord, we're all in different circumstances, uh, doing different things, dealing with different things. And so, Lord, faithfully I ask, use your word once again. Lord, we know that it is living and active. Use it once again 
to speak to the deepest places of each one of our hearts so that the result might be we'd walk out of here, Lord, and we'd approach this next week of our lives having been impacted by the Word of God and changed. And that's certainly what we desire. Lord, all of that so that we might honor your name and bring glory to your name. Lord, we pray when opportunities come for us to point other people to you, that we would be diligent about taking those opportunities, Lord, that your word might advance, that souls might be saved. And so bless our lives as we seek to follow you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.